from somewhere in Israel, from different locations in the lockdown, quarantine, post-apocalyptic Jewish state. This is In the Blue Corner. I'm David Hazoni, the Executive Director of the Israel Innovation Fund. We're with Adam Scott Bellows, the founder and CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund, an incredibly important, wonderful, cool guest. Incredibly important. So I want to say, first of all, before we fully introduce Yosef Abramowitz, who is an inspiring national figure, a visionary of renewable energy, of national Zionist action, of coolness and funness. Let's start by telling us how on earth you managed to get the south of Israel, the Arava, the desert areas, to go solar. Tell us the story. Well, first, I'm really delighted to be on with especially the two of you and uh, with uh, Blue Corner and all, all the good people and all the good projects associated with it. My wife, Susan, and I decide that we're going to move from the um, suburbs of Boston with our three cars, house, nanny, kind of the middle class Jewish existence and we decided to move to Kibbutz Keturah in the Arava, and where I had been a volunteer 25 years earlier. People in the Young Judea Youth Movement who uh, set up the camp, where I was a counselor for David and for others, um, they decided to create a kibbutz modeled essentially on some of the values of the movement in the camp. And so we packed up the five kids, 14 suitcases, landed at Ben Gurion Airport on the 24th of August, 2006, take a van down to Kibbutz Keturah. We first stopped, of course, at the uh, Montefiore uh, Cemetery to pay respects to Echad Ha'am. Then we stopped to see Paul and David Ben Gurion, and we get to Keturah at the end of the day. The sun is setting. We open the doors of the air-conditioned van and we are hit, just hit, with the most incredible heat. And we come staggering out of the van, seven Bostonians, and the sun is in its last rays setting behind the kibbutz, the Israeli mountain. And the last rays are like Superman laser beams, and they just go <laughs> cartoonishly. <laughs> and in an instant, burn seven um, naive, idealistic, hot Bostonians. And I say to myself, I'm sure the whole place works on solar power. That was the moment. And it was not true. It doesn't work. <laughs> I, so I asked, and they're like, no, no solar power here. And so the second day, I was like, well, I'm sure the region must have, because it's the third most extreme desert in the world. And they're like, no. Nope. Third day, I was like, I thought Israel was like a world leader on something to do with this. And people said, yeah, but no one's crazy enough to fight the government. And I was like, you know, my, my hand went up. I'll do that. <laughs> So, um, yeah, within the first week, we incorporated the Arava Power Company with a audacious goal of, wouldn't it be cool if by 2020, the whole Arava from Elat, including the hotels and everything, all the way to the Dead Sea, wouldn't it be cool if it would be the first region in the world to be 100% solar powered during the day by 2020? And everyone thought I was a lunatic. It kind of sounds like your background, I guess you could say in civil disobedience and causing trouble has a big part of becoming the solar pioneer that you are. Your wife is a big activist, so is your daughter. You were heavily involved in the movement to free Soviet Jewry and were, if I'm correct, nominated for like 
the Nobel Peace Prize like three times for your work with that. Did that play a huge role in kind of giving you the confidence to be like, okay, I'm going to take on the Israeli government. I'm going to create an entire paradigm shift in a region which would then lead to the globe? So it's a very uh, astute question. Actually, if it wasn't for the Soviet jury movement, you wouldn't have solar power in any serious way in Israel, in the Arava, or in Africa, or even with the Palestinians. Because when people in Israel heard my idea and said, you're naive American kibbutznik, it will never work. That's sort of the cynical Israeli answer. In my mind, it was like, wait a second. I used to get Hebrew teachers out of solitary confinement in Siberia with KGB. We can't change a couple laws in our own country. So my worldview was entirely informed by decades of successful activism. And I just didn't know that my ability to make change in the world with troublemaking skills had a business application. And that, that's been <laughs> an interesting curve that's been really an exciting journey to explore and then actually implement. I think my activism DNA is informed by a variety of sources. On, on the one hand, I look at my parents. My dad was one of the people who went down to the South after the summer when the three um, civil rights workers were killed and they were looking for new recruits. And he I was one years old and he, he went down for the summer to register black voters. Before that, he was at the I Have a Dream speech of Martin Luther King. I actually, I was born three weeks early, so the timing means, this might be a little bit too much information, but about to give you a scoop. I was either conceived on the day, the night before the march or the night after the march on Washington. For the conception of the activist idea. Uh, Amazing. Sure, I remember my mom being very active in the Equal Rights Amendment and other things and that's sort of like family. And then uh, very inspired by the Zionist story. I mean to, to come back after 2,000 years, the odds were, were pretty bad. If you're taking bets back in you know, the year 70, um, the structure of the temple burning and the Romans ruling the world didn't look good, you know, for a 2000 year old Daga. So very inspired by the movement to come back and reestablish the third commonwealth. So that really means anything is possible. The um, prophetic voices in Judaism, to me, in a sense, different ways of looking at Judaism and how to express it. But Isaiah is very clear about our role in the world. What really happened is in the movement, in the Judea movement, I, I drank the Kool-Aid early. I was ripe to drink it early. And I started my activism early so that when you start off your life with modest goals and you achieve them, then the next time out, your horizon get wider and wider and wider. And so I happen to have played a role in the anti-apartheid movement and in the Soviet jury movement and the rescue of Jews from Yemen and Ethiopia. And so my field of vision kept expanding. Instead, instead of sort of being knocked down through whatever accidents of history, the idea of, hey, let's get Israel to go solar, at least the Arava, and let's save the world from climate crisis, that doesn't feel so far afield when I've been part of great movements that have changed the course of history. The only thing I keep thinking about from your answer is just how important Jewish education is and mm. how important knowing your history is and how inspiring it can be once you know your own story, where you're from, which means that you understand where you can go. Can you just fill in a few details though on what happened next, right? We heard 2006, we got the massive inspiration. When did the South hook up to the grid solarly? How did that happen? What kind of struggles did you face? Who opposed you? What was your darkest moment? One of the things you learn when you're doing activism is that you always need a core team. You can't do anything yourself. One of my core competencies is building teams. 
And I was very fortunate to connect with Kibbutz Keturah and Ed Hofland. And then another young Judean in New Jersey, David Rosenblatt, Harvard Business School, all that kind of stuff. I have certain strengths and I have certain weaknesses, but we put together very quickly kind of the three-person founding group for the Arava Power Company with that goal. Susan, who, you know, we moved to Keturah for peace and quiet, kind of gel as a family. We have five kids, two, two adopted from Ethiopia. Kid number five came home. We were supposed to just chill and write books. So Susan's like rolling her eyes and was like, we came to the middle of nowhere. So I wouldn't get involved in anything kooky. And here I was trying to start a... Uh, power company. So there was no regulation in the state of Israel. I got Susan to agree to let me try for six months because I thought it was a pretty easy, that was a slam dunk actually, because I'd done, I thought, more difficult things. And I said, look, the sun's here, the grid's here, the kibbutz is giving the land. And also there's a little notice in the Jerusalem Post that the energy regulator was going to provide a feed-in tariff for solar fields. So I was like, this is going to be a piece of cake. Uh, I knocked on all the right doors in Jerusalem. After six months, Susan said, I, I hope you're giving up this ridiculous quest. What I said was, I thought I was going to build a solar field. Now I understand we have to build the entire field of solar energy generation for the state of Israel, from the local planning council all the way to the prime minister's office. And we made a list of 100 political, regulatory, and statutory battles that would have to be won in order to enable the solar fields to happen. So we had five cursed years of just chipping away at the established norms in the state of Israel. Wow. But after five years, we had to do four friends and family rounds. That means raising $25,000, $50,000 here and there because everything took so much longer and it was so much harder. Bad guys along the way, entrenched interests. But then on World Environment Day, June 5th, 2011, we plugged in Israel's first utility scale, solar fields fulfilling Ben Gurion's dream for that sector Amazing. as well. And wow. uh, to this day, um, the country is embarrassingly behind and disorganized, but the Arava is 2020, and um, we're about to be 100% daytime solar in the Arava. Wow, including a lot? Especially including a lot, yeah. Amazing. And, and probably the first region in the world. So the idea is to show everybody it's possible, it's economical, it's feasible, and the Aravash should be an example for the rest of Israel. And then Israel can be shining renewable light onto the nations so that we can get every country in the world to do this because we're out of time. It's an incredibly inspiring story. And it strikes me that that would be enough, especially if you can make it economically sustainable, especially if you can make it a functioning business and make some money off of it. But it wasn't enough for you, was it? You took your show on the road and now you're doing it in Africa, right? Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, we were headquartered in the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, which is a Mechon Arava, on the kibbutz that trains uh, Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian, American, other students in, in renewables. And a master's student there, my name was Lucy Michael, said, you know, I hear what you're up to. Have you thought about doing this in the Bedouin sector? And I was like, Bedouin sector? You can't, it can't be done in the Bedouin sector. Shame on me. And she said, well, if I introduce you to some people, are you willing to explore? And actually, of course, I said yes. 
Because if there's going to be benefits, financial benefits for the people of the South of Israel, shouldn't it apply to all the citizens in the South? And through her introductory efforts, and then Arav opened a Bedouin office in Beersheba, I had learned to work with Bedouin tribes. And the idea there was to, same vision, so that when we completed the first field at Keturah, and then people started coming from all over the world, primarily Africa, and said, hey, Startup Nation, can you help us bring this to Africa? because I already knew how to work with tribe, it didn't seem like such a big leap to try this also in Africa, which is, you know, different and than what, Israel. And, and, did, and was it a big leap? I mean, was the, was the experience with the Bedouin tribes in any way applicable in Africa? Very applicable from the point of view of landowners and giving honor and really trying to emphasize the social and economic development that would come with the green energy investments is very helpful. And yet, each country, there are 54 countries in Africa, we looked at all of them, and no one had ever successfully done what we had done at Keturah in Sub-Sahara Africa. So it wasn't just that we're naive American kibbutznik trying to do it in Israel, we're naive American kibbutznik trying now to do it in Sub-Sahara Africa, and there was no precedent for that. And so that was a pretty tall, Order. So how did you start? Where did you begin? Well, we experimented in a variety of places and then we decided to focus on Rwanda. Why Rwanda? I, well, uh, one is they were 18 years post-genocide, kind of pulled their society together. The president was very serious and most importantly, my friend and partner in that, Ann Heyman, she had also grown up in the Njidea Youth Movement in the same club in Brookline, Massachusetts. And went on your course, met her husband at Kibbutz Keturah, uh, and later in life was an activist philanthropist. And she decided in 2006, just when we started the Arava Power Company, that she was going to build an Israeli-style youth village for orphans in Rwanda. So we had started at the same time. She made incredible progress and uh, had titled to the land. At a certain point, we kind of joined our stories. And she invited our family to volunteer at Agahosa Shalom Youth Village for a couple weeks. And one of the most hopeful places on earth, 500 orphans from the genocide and after. And at a certain point, she put her arm around me and said, Yossi, you see that area behind the school? Build me one of those Israeli solar fields, but let me have some revenue to help fund the, the kids in the village. Uh, and so, you know, no one says no to Anne Heyman. And I said, Anne, no one's ever, ever succeeded in Sub-Saharan Africa. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> she had title to land there, which was very helpful. And it was difficult, but there was no hint of corruption in Rwanda. The um, president fired the ministers who didn't deliver. So there's a very clear signal from the top. President Kagame was actually in Jerusalem for Shimon Peres's uh, it was then our president's uh, 90th birthday, and Anne and I were able to meet with him, and a month later, signed the deal. And so, a small little group uh, out of Israel wow. became the first ones to do utility-scale solar in sub-Saharan Africa. The field at Agahosa Shalom supplied 6% of Rwanda's power. It covered all, and it still covers, the medical costs for 500 orphans over a 25-year period. It reduced their grid reliance on diesel, so we're saving the environment. And it also reinforced one of our best friends in the UN, who was then on this UN Security Cabinet. So we perfected the quadruple bottom line model and with what we learned in Israel. What's your ambitious moonshot time frame 
uh, for something in Africa now, if you did it for the Arava by 2020, what are we going to see in Africa, say, by 2040? Well, the truth is I've already missed all my ambitious uh, <laughs> goals in Africa. You know, Rwanda was a very professional, straight process. And because it was the first, had the support of the president, um, Chaim Utsin was my partner on that. He was able to really cut through and move things along. There are 600 million people in Africa without access to power today. There's two to 300 million who are getting their power off of burning expensive polluting diesel, who, which comes from countries that don't share our values, shall we say. And the population of the continent is gonna double within a generation. So the opportunities to elevate human dignity in Africa are infinite. We can't do it alone, but we are, with our business model that we took out of the Arava and that we're replicating, we're working in 10 African countries. Most of these places were the only people doing it. And just like in Israel, because we came in and we succeeded and other companies came in and invested, we um, sincerely hope that that will also be the case in the countries we're working in in Africa, but only after we, uh, we make some money uh, doing it. As a company, we are very much wanting to give power to 50 million people over the next uh, five to 10 years uh, directly, which is thousands and thousands of megawatts. This is this is really incredible, and I know that you've had some some just unbelievable successes. You had one less successful venture that had nothing to do with uh, solar energy. That was the better place. But I want to hear the lessons you learned from it. Well, first of all, it's uh, it's definitely got my uh, MBA through that. Um, learned more incredible amount through that. But it is I do want to correct you. It is connected to the solar story. Why? Because when Shai started, it was roughly the same time Shai Agassi with the idea of Better Place. It was also around the time we started Arava Power. And then early on, I said to him, look, Shai, if you're going to touting all the environmental benefits of this idea, but the truth is that Israel was basically all on coal, all you're doing is you're having people plug into the dirtiest grid in the Western world. So you're just moving the place of the pollution. Let me, let me power with the sun all the charge spots. Let's do it that way. He had some strengths, visionary, etc. He had some weaknesses, like we all do, and uh, it was dismissed. So when Better Place went into liquidation, there was a nonprofit group of the Association of the Electric Car Drivers and they needed someone who had a successful experience in beating up the Israeli government to accomplish something green and good and uh, regulatory based. So I, I hooked up with them to help them. I said publicly at the time in the Jerusalem Post, if we make any money, we're donating it all to green groups. I was doing it only really to save Israel's good name in the global green space and finally marry the solar dream with the electric car dream. Israel could have been the first. It died a second, third, and fourth death. One of those was unfortunately also on my watch. And it continues to be painful. Very, very painful. Number one lesson. I learned so many lessons. Um, we're still in um, litigation in Gishor and uh, mediation six years later, seven years later. So I can't say too much. But I, I was just a placeholder in this, trying to help Israel recover and set a model for the rest of the world. I took on way too much risk personally, 
for which we've paid dearly and we're, we're, we're paying dearly, where I should have somehow just kept it as a consulting role, but they needed my good name and whatever entities and to stand behind all this stuff. And it was supposed to be very temporary. The other thing is that the Israeli government did not speak with one voice. I, we had the green light that things were going to move forward. And then the transportation ministry killed it, totally killed it, even though the prime minister's office was in favor. And uh, lots of other lessons. We went in with good intentions and the state killed us. They, they, they really killed us. Let's sum up here. You were uh, conceived on or before or the night before <laughs> the, the March on Washington for, yeah. for Dr. King. You uh, grew up as a Soviet Jewry activist. You yeah. uh, embodied the Zionist vision of making the desert uh, bloom. You uh-huh. came to Israel. You invented the entire solar in- energy industry. It wasn't enough. You went to Africa. You created an incredible example of how renewable energy can actually save the world. And you also want to be president of Israel. You've run for president. And for those of you unfamiliar, this is not running for prime minister, right? This is trying to Mm -hmm. become a position that is 95% symbolic, except when you have election issues the way we've had, then it becomes a very important position. But it's kind of modeled after the role of the monarch in Great Britain in some way. Why do you want that position? And what is your number one goal that you'd like to achieve through being the president of the state of Israel? So we're still weighing about next year, if we're going to go for it. Thanks for the question. What happened last time is that it got ugly very quickly. All these two-bit politicians, most of whom everyone knew were essentially crooks, but prosecution hadn't happened yet. What year is this? It was six years ago, right? It was the last election, 2000. 14, I believe. And so you had all these politicians wanting to end their career kind of on this distinguished note. And it was a lot of backroom dealing and people had to keep dropping out of the race because of whatever came up in their past that was questionable. And that uh, there was six, seven of them on it. And it was appalling to me how dirty it was because nobody was talking about the vision of the Jewish people, the vision for the state of Israel and the role of the presidency. And I was actually very inspired. I grew up at a time where I remember very clearly Jesse Jackson running for president. He wasn't gonna be the president or the Democratic nominee, but he stayed in the game because he had a message. And uh, actually, during the presidential run, I was at the uh, Milken conference in LA, we had breakfast together. And that was really fun, just to get his worldview on running for president with the vision. What my vision was at the time is that shouldn't the presidency represent to the world Israeli innovation for tikkun olam, right? For what we can contribute to the world. And then in terms of the Jewish people, shouldn't the state of Israel and therefore the presidency represent that Israel is a spiritual home for all Jews of all flavors and colors. And doesn't our family represent that? And so we had those twin messages out there that that is why we are running to put those ideas front and center. And it was so much fun. (laughs) 
but the idea then was really to test the waters, which we did. Probably a three bites at the apple type of thing, where this next time, if we run, the idea is to get 10 Knesset members to sign. And the third time, maybe to take it, because this time was supposed to be Yuli Edelstein, the um, former speaker of the Knesset, a very high, well-respected consensus builder. It was his to lose, and now he's completely lost it. So it is wide open uh, moving forward. And uh, we'll see. I, I think I would need to have a partial solar exit to be able to focus on it. But those messages would be very much the same. I have investors. These are my stakeholders. And uh, my goal is to make sure that we accomplish goals for them, including making money. So I wouldn't be able to seriously run for the office again unless we were on track to make the money. You met Bono. What's he like? Oh my God, he's so cool. He's cooler in person than even you think. Look, when we launched the field at Kibbutz Keturah, David Broza came and performed for free. Yetov, it was really good and it's going to be good. So, you know, Africa, Bana has been an anti-poverty campaigner for three, four decades, basically. He's really been amazing. I had never met him in person. And he came to uh, Agahosa Shalom, to the field. We brought a congressional delegation with him because we were passing the Electrify Africa Act at the time in Congress. And he knows his stuff. He's not just a pretty face with a good voice and a, and a cool manner. He is an expert on um, development, on AIDS, on uh, financial modeling, on debt reform, and just a mensch. And really, he's, he's a very deep spiritual side. He connected with really the idea with of mission plus business is really the way to go. And he couldn't leave the field. Uh, he had to cancel like three, four other visits that day in Rwanda because he was just having a great time. Wow. You met Bono. That's so cool. Dang <laughs> power of the people together. Like a, a short little 10 second clip, but I, we got it. We got it. I had a duet. Incredible. With Bono. You have a really famous uh, alter ego known as Captain Sunshine. Uh, that where 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 did it come from? <laughs> so when we were starting out, as I said in the uh, in the RFF, like it was very uh, it was a ludicrous vision for most people, and so some of the people on keyboard started calling me Captain Sunshine just for the fun of it, uh, and and my aunt uh, Rosalind in New York as well. Uh, so when the New York Times came to do like a profile, they picked it up and. Once the New York Times calls you Captain Sunshine, it's stuck. But Captain Sunshine has a secret weapon, I was told, by your, by your daughter. Oh, foiled. There's those in the <laughs> Yeah. So, well, look, um, there are a lot of bad guys. Who, who, by the way, she also claims that she's your favorite. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she's my favorite Hillel, without a doubt. Um, so, well, look, there are a lot of bad guys in the world. And... Taking on the bad guys is a very frustrating experience because you just got to chip away. You're up against big powers. And sometimes idealism isn't enough. And so, as you said, like really the, the strength of going forward as an entrepreneur, try to change the world, is under having a deep sense of your history and your roots. Well, on my right hand, I have the ring. There's a coin from the Second Temple period by King Yochinus, who's the last of the high priests, Maccabean high priest, who was also king of Israel. And he had a fascination with the sun. 
So I have a 2000 year old temple era coin embedded in a ring. And I will confess, I often, when it's sunny, I will charge it, hand up to the sun. And then when I have to go to the Knesset or deal with all sorts of other people, I zap bad guys. And I've had to zap a lot of bad guys with my ring. And you should see the, like, the expression on the faces of the Knesset members. I should find some video. We have it. But every bad guy that I zapped in the Knesset is no longer in their position. I just want to point that out. So, so you're saying that you have the ability to remove members of Knesset over time. Well, it's not just members of Knesset. It's also the bureaucracy. But what's really frustrating about the powers of this ring, there seems to be a two to three year delay in the effects. Fantastic having you today. I mean, it like, is really, uh, what a what a guest. Really, what an entertaining. It's more than a pleasure. It's it, today. You know, we're all coroned out. Like fun is is a very high premium. So, <laughs> I, so I, I want to thank you for being. Thank you for what you're doing. First of all, above and beyond everything you else. You guys are um, representing out there the uh, great new way of connecting with Israel and the Jewish people and, you know, business models and idealism and a little wine, a little fun, like all that is... We're important. not... Hey, Yossi, we're not electrifying Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you know what? I have one other question that I do want to make sure I get in there. Something that was so interesting that I keep thinking about. You said the first stop that you, you guys made as a family yeah. after making Aliyah was to the Trumpledor Cemetery in, in, in Tel Aviv. Yeah. And you went and saw Achara Am. And, and you know, a lot of the work that we do at the Israel Innovation Fund has a lot to do with Achara Am's vision of cultural Zionism and, and connecting to Israel through your culture, so to speak. You know, can you, just, I mean, like, is there anything I get you to add about, you know, the role that he must have played in your life? Because, I mean, that's a, it's a pretty powerful thing to get off the plane to Israel, make Aliyah and go straight to the cemetery and pay respects to Echad Yeah, look, it was also, it was around his birthday, and he does not get his due in Jewish life, because what happened with all these Zionist thinkers, they all essentially ended up with movements and political parties that gave expression to that vision of Zionism. And here's a guy who lost to Herzl on the question of statehood, importance of settlement. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you didn't have really important contributions on ethics and the role of Judaism to lift up the body, meaning the nation state, and his creative thinking. I think he's sorely missed by Israeli society. This either or between religious and secular is ludicrous, and that can't Jewish values really inform every kind of Jew worldwide, but with Israel at its center? Shouldn't all of our rules and politics be ethically based? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be legitimizing that, the, that Jewish peoplehood is not only nationalism, but it, and it's not only religion, but it's also culture. And these, there are different pathways and on-ramps and ways of expressing. I think he's sorely missed. And if elected, a picture of Haram will also hang in Beit Hanasi. There you go. Wow, that, that is, that's amazing. And, and once again, I really want to thank you, Yosef uh, Abramowitz, for uh, bringing light to the world, bringing light to Israel, bringing light to the nations. We are in the blue corner. This is the podcast of the Israel Innovation Fund. We are today in lockdown. 
but we're doing the podcast anyway, and we're encouraging everybody else to be strong, be safe. I'm David Hazzoni. We're with Adam Scott Bellows, the founder and CEO of the Israel Innovation Fund, and Yosef Abramowitz brought solar energy to Israel's south, who is bringing it to the world, who is bringing a lot of light and a lot of sunshine into our lives every day. So thank you again. Thank you.